Hey everybody, how's it going? I know it's been a while since we dropped the episode, but today I'm here bringing you guys a special episode of the Crew Only Podcast. I have Gabe Chavez, who's going to be talking to us about the time that he worked on Spike Lee's Masterclass. So this episode is filled with plenty of gems. You're going to hear Gabe talk about his experience working with Spike Lee, some cool stories that Spike Lee told during the Masterclass. So guys, it's just going to be a really dope episode. I know you guys are going to hear some really cool things about Spike and just him being this awesome filmmaker. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to Gabe about it. So check it out. Welcome to the Crew Only Podcast. My name is Jasmine Porter, a freelance television and film professional. Each episode, I'll bring you a unique crew member from a different department to discuss their role in making a film. We'll give you exclusive behind-the-scenes stories and advice on how you can get your start, too. Thank you for joining us today, and welcome to The Crew Life. So last year, I got to keep Spike Lee's Masterclass. Like, Which I see the ads for all the time. Yeah, and like I'm a huge Spike Lee fan, and you know he, he's another one that like greatly changed who I was. Like, I love his I saw, movies. When I saw Do the Right Thing, like I, I, I don't mean to overblow it like everybody else overblows it. It is a milestone film. Like It's something that everyone should see, mm-hmm. and it's something that everyone should think about and talk about because it's so honest and because it is true to life in so many ways that like I I love Spike you know and so like I got this job the production coordinator was a friend of a friend who was an electrician who was a gaffer and his name's uh, uh, Justin Davis and Justin calls me and he's like hey you know this girl Zoe's gonna reach out to you about this thing blah 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 blah. it's like a week long you know you want to come and key it and I was like yeah sure he's like I'm gaffing it so let's let's do this yeah it's like great so you call or Zoe you had no idea what it was I had no idea what it was but Zoe calls me and she's like, "Oh yeah, it's uh, it's called Sessions." And she's like, "It's it's the code name for Masterclass. Like we're Masterclass, blah 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 blah. It's a union contract." But they majors. don't. Why don't they say like what it really is? I don't know. But she's like, "It's a union contract. It's the majors. So like this is your rate, blah blah blah." blah. And I was like, "Great, sounds great." And she's like, "You know, it's two days of prep, you know, a day for a pre-light, and then it's four days of shooting, and then you know, wrap out the last day." I was like, "Oh, sounds great." So I show up to the production meeting when we're going to go to the tech scout and she puts out these little pamphlets of like who the subject is and like the style and everything mm-hmm. like that that they're looking for and I see that it's Spike Lee. And I <laughs> Did was you like, freak out? I was like, I tried not to because I was sitting there I was like, I don't want to let all these people know that I'm like a huge fan. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I mean, we, and I started throwing out ideas of like visual things that we could do that Spike has done in his movies. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we could do the, uh, the double dolly shot. We could yeah. put Spike on the dolly and we could move him through his space, you know, and that could be his intros. He could be talking as we're moving through this space and you'd be mm-hmm. like, I'm Spike Lee and this is my master class. Like I had all these ideas based on that, but I was trying not to like geek out too yeah. much. Yeah. You were trying to keep but it cool. But then they're like, oh okay, let's go see the location. They go around the corner and it's Spike Lee's Forty Acres and a Mule Filmworks that we're gonna shoot in. We're gonna shoot in his shop. Which is like right in the middle of Fort Green, Brooklyn. And so we wow. go inside and like as we're going around, you know, he's all of his walls are populated with stuff like the man is a film museum and like cultural museum like there's so much on his walls that are you know he's got what his most interesting possession in my opinion or most expensive possession so to speak is that he has a signed jersey from michael jordan the year before he signed with the bulls wow and i'm like 
that's worth 10, 15 yeah. <laughs> million, like just this jersey. And like the other thing that he has is he has the pizza box, Sal's Pizzeria. He's got the pizza box what? that Mookie takes and like, you know, the whole thing yeah. kicks off. He's got that original prop signed by everybody that worked on that crew framed on his wall just to remind him where he came from. You know, he's got the tube socks from She's Gotta Have It that he's selling on the street wow. corner. And he's got all this stuff on his walls from every filmmaker you can think of. Francis Ford Coppola, Terrence Malick, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. He's got original posters of everything signed by these people. Two Spike loves, loves Steven, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, it's just Steven Spielberg. <laughs> oh, you it's know, just like... some random guy. <laughs> but he's got, he's got all this stuff on his walls, but like he's such, a, he's such a quiet dude. And like he was so unassuming that like I shook his hand. I'm like, yo, hey Spike, you know, I'm the key grip, blah, 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 blah. I just want to talk to you about like stuff you don't want on the walls when we're shooting in here, you know, stuff that's really valuable that you're mm-hmm. worried we might damage or whatever. So he talked to me for a little bit about that and it was like, it was very quick. He was very, you know, nonchalant about it. And then he went off and he did his own thing. So we prepped for the next three days. And then when we get Spike into the studio and we're going to shoot, I remember like I had to sit behind monitor and like evaluate the frame and I had to be there the entire time with the gaffer and I was like this is great I'm gonna literally get yeah a longer master class because they're gonna cut this down inevitably from Spike Lee and yeah. I'm gonna get to listen to this hero of mine like talk and like just hearing him talk I got to listen to him talk for four days and just listening to him talk about all of his experiences and what it means to be a filmmaker, especially the only black filmmaker in New York at that time that had any sort of say in yeah. what he was doing, especially with the way that he makes movies, that it was it was a real treat. It was something that I never could have expected or ever gotten the chance to do otherwise. And so, like, uh, I remember that as it was winding down and we were on the last day, I was like, you know, I gotta, I gotta get something signed by him. You know, I, I've worked on like 55 different union TV shows and movies over the course of me doing this. And of all the people I've worked with, Robert De Niro, Christian Bale, Russell mm-hmm. Crowe, so on, like I've never asked someone for an autograph. And he but, was the first person I asked. I was like, you know, I, I never do this. I was like, but Spike, your movies mean the world to me. Your voice as a filmmaker speaks directly to my heart because I have that anger. I have that you know, indignation mm-hmm. when it comes to racial identity issues in America and the way that America mistreats people of color. And I said, that's, that's something that speaks directly to me. I'm like, can you please sign something for me? And he's like, yeah. He's like, what do you got? And I said, well, I got this Malcolm X hat. And like Malcolm X is a movie that like greatly shaped my opinion on the nation of Islam, number one. Yeah. Because after that movie, I started reading about Islam and I read the Quran because of that movie just to see what yeah. the hoopla was about and how people identify as Muslim and stuff like that and what they really believe because I didn't want to believe any of these misconceptions yeah. that I'd heard. So, like, I told him that and I'm like, you know, I, I want you to sign this hat. And he's like, absolutely. So he signs my hat and, like, hands it back to me, gets in his Uber and goes home. And I was like, Spike Lee just signed my Malcolm X Yeah, <laughs> like, what? <laughs> So wow. I had a really hard time, like, not freaking yeah. out about that. But I was just like, oh, man, this dude. Is... Like, he, he's the man, you know? Like, and I get why people don't like him. I genuinely understand why people say that he's an asshole. Why? And, like, be, he's a manic person. Mm. Like, if you have as much to say as he does this, in the way that he says it, you're and gonna as much be indignation as he has toward, you know, the political justice system against people of color as he does, you're going you're gonna to be a manic person. You're not going to be happy all the time, you know? And, like, that's who he is. He's very much that person. 
and I get why he's that way after meeting the man and listening to him talk. But the coolest story I can tell you about that whole shoot was that um, we were at the end of the second day and the executive producer was asking the questions and so the executive producer says, let's go into Malcolm X. It's like it's like right near the end of the last day and they have like an hour left maybe. Mm-hmm. And she's like, let's go into Malcolm X and talk about Malcolm X. And he's like, wait, you want to talk about Malcolm X, the most important movie I've ever made in an hour, hour. before we leave? And she's like, well, you know, we could just run through it real quick. He's like, no, no, no. There's no running through it really quick. He's like, we're going to stop here. I'm going to leave. He says, tomorrow morning, first thing up, we'll talk about Malcolm X. And he's like, and I'm going to talk about it as long as it takes to talk about it. And so he just got up and walked out. And he took his mic off and he he walked out. And he's just like, that's it. It's over. And I was like, okay, great. You know, finish up. Let's wrap up and get out of here. And so like the next day he comes in and he starts talking about it. And his interesting story that he had to tell was... He was saying how important it was for him as telling the story of Malcolm X to have as many people of color on the crew as possible because it is so much about people of colors like Mm -hmm. civil rights and like how they speak as a people and their voice in America that he wanted to represent that and he wanted to represent Malcolm X's idea of like bringing people of color into the industry that you're working in. So like he he went to the Teamsters and he was like really upset because they were going to shoot in this prison and you know like it's a very emotional scene about malcolm going to prison and like having to do what he had to do during that time period that he wanted he looked around and he saw like all the teamsters were white yeah what yeah and he said in New York City. yeah and he he looked he went up to the transville captain and he said yo man you know like i don't i don't mean to be like presumptuous or anything like that but he's like you know I, I see a lot of white guys in your crew like there aren't any black teamsters in new york and this guy had the audacity to tell spike like no there's no black teamsters and he's like well none that are available and spike was like okay that's fine he's like you know what next week instead of shooting that scene when we we're going to be on location he's like we're going to move into the stage we're not going to need you guys next week it's like you can park the trailers for the week and you know we we can take it from there we'll load in the first day and you guys can take the week off and like what? as soon as he said that the next day there were four teamsters that were black on the crew and he's like oh i thought you said there were no black teamsters and like I love that story You're because kidding. he he used his position yeah. to say something of merit to this man. Mm-hmm. Is that he could have taken this guy's word for He's it? Like, okay. And like you know, but he knew that it wasn't. That true. was lying. He's like, there's no way in a you city you can't find and as large as New York City that there's no black teamsters. Like you can't tell me that. And I really appreciated that he used his position in order to do that. To do that. And there's the whole thing about Spike that maybe Spike is like damaging you know racial issues and talking about it by doing things like that that he's being you know reductive toward white people but like i think it's not i think it's creating at least a um even field i think what he's doing is he's literally holding up a mirror holding them accountable if 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 you're feeling discriminated against in this issue imagine how this feels for all the time all the time and like that, I think he doesn't even need to say that. He just does things like that. Yeah. And like they start realizing what's happening. Because how many people of color have been denied for a job because they don't trust them because they're brown or they're black? Yeah. You know, oh, they're going to be around money. You know, we can't. We don't trust you know, them. I don't really like this guy's look. We don't really trust him. You know, like let's hire this other guy instead. Yeah. Like how many times does that happen every single day? And, you know, this is what's happening with this white Teamsters. We're not going to need you next week. Yeah, like yeah. oh, we don't need and you. And all of a sudden, he's like, oh, you know what? You know, like I got four of them. I got four of them all of a sudden, and 
like that's that's something that's like I I really attach to that story and I love listening to Spike talk about that because he talks about all the experiences work in Denzel Washington and like mm-hmm. you know going through Malcolm X and everything like that and what that meant about not having enough money to shoot because he sh- he shared another story about how they got through three quarters of the movie they didn't and they knew any- that they were gonna get through the sequence when he goes to Mecca. And they knew that they were gonna get through that, and like it's the first Hollywood production that's mm-hmm. ever shot in Mecca. Like that was the first one yeah. was Malcolm X, and so like he he knew that they were gonna get through that, but after that they were gonna run out of money, and that they would have to shut down until they found more money. And so like he shut down, and he went to all of his friends. Everybody, shut down for how long? I think he shut down for like two months or something oh, like wow. that. But he went to everybody that he'd ever met, all the black entertainers that he knew. Oprah, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson. He went to everybody that he's ever done an ad for mm-hmm. or worked with and said, you know, like, I need to complete this movie. Like, it's important that I tell this story. This is the movie that I'm going to be remembered for. And he said, you know, if you give me the money, it's going to have to be literally giving me the money because I can't promise you that people are going to go see this film. Yeah. And it's a difficult subject matter. He's a controversial character in history, and he didn't know that it was going to make it. But, like, they gave him the money. He started back up, and they finished the movie. But when he was going into the editing process, he had a really great story to tell about Warner Brothers. Is that He flew out to L.A., and it was in 1991 that he was editing it. And uh, during that time period, there was a lot of civil unrest because of Rodney King. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Watts riots were starting again. Yeah. And the city was lighting on fire. And he said that when he was coming in was the day before the city lit on fire, when they lit the city on fire after Rodney King. But he said that when he was there, he was screening the movie before the executives and like it was three and a half hours long. And the executives told him like, you need to cut the film. Like it can't be three and a half hours. Like three and a half hours means that we have four less screenings a day per theater times however many theaters. Like that's a lot of money that we're foregoing Mm -hmm. because of the length of the film. And so Spike was asking them about, he said, oh, you know, like, I, I don't want to cut it down. Like, you have to tell this story. And so they were adamant about it. And he's like, you know what? I know, you know, Oliver Stone is doing JFK right now. How long is JFK? And they told him it's one hour and 45 minutes because that's the number that they wanted him to hit. And so he, he laughs about it and he says, they didn't know that I knew Oliver, that Oliver was a friend of mine. So he called Oliver Stone after he got out of the meeting with the executives and said, hey, how long is JFK running? And he says, it's running three hours and 23 minutes. And he says, okay, then I'm going to do a three and a half hour movie of Malcolm X. He's like, you can't tell a three and a half story, yeah. three and a half hour story about JFK and not tell, and not tell that same decency to Malcolm, Malcolm X. X. And so he was like adamant about it. And so he ended up calling the executives and said, hey, I just got the information that JFK okay. is running three hours and 23 minutes. Like, mine's three hours and 12 minutes. Like, you're going to run with this, it. right? I'm going to keep it, right? And, like, they ended up having to give because he found out that information before it ended up happening. And he said that that night was the night that the city lit on fire. And he actually had to be rushed from Warner Brothers back to the airport and cut his meeting short in order to get on a plane and get out of L.A. before this airport wow. shut down because of the riot. That was like... <laughs> Who would have, like, known? <laughs> That's an amazing story. Like, I was just listening to Spike talk about this, and I'm just like, man, the man, like, the man himself telling me the story about yeah. what was happening, making Malcolm X. Like, I couldn't have paid to, like, I couldn't have paid to hear this. Yeah. Honestly. Like, listening to talk about, you know, do the right thing, and, like, what was happening during that time period, and, like, how angry people were over that movie, and the theater owners were threatening to pull it because they were thinking that people were going to riot, you know, after mm-hmm. seeing the movie. 
and just how like volatile that was and he's like this is a small story, story. like this isn't even the tip of the iceberg when mm-hmm. it comes to people of and color you guys struggle. are like and you guys are freaking, freaking out, out like there, this there's gonna be a race war over this and like just hearing him talk and the thing that i thought was most interesting about working with him was that a majority of the production crew for master class is white they have one person of color and she's a woman i was say like he uh <laughs> you want all these people of color and yeah. then but everybody's white on the yeah. production crew and so like i when i got the job and i realized who it was the people that i called in order to crew up were all people of color because mm. i was like how's it going to look on me being a yeah. grip and him looking at my crew and crew. it's all lily white people yeah. like that's not going to look good he's going to think i'm some token guy you yeah. know? he's going to be like this kid doesn't know what's going on but like the fact of the matter that I hired a crew of people of color that were good at their jobs and knew what they were, they were doing, doing. And they were all admirers of him. Like he ended up asking me, like, you know, I saw your guy, you like, you ain't got no white boys on your crew, and I was like, oh wow, I was like no, like I didn't, you know, I know plenty of white guys, but like these are the guys that I work with for a reason. It's not just yeah. because of their skin color. It's because I can have a deep, meaningful conversation, conversation with, with these them. people about my daily struggles that I'm having. He recognized that. Yeah, he recognized that. And I was like, that meant a lot to me to see Spike recognize something in me that was deeper than, you know, skin deep skin color. Yeah. But he, you know, just listening to him talk was, it was like, it was an unbelievable experience. Like, something you'll never forget. But what I was going to say was that there's one woman of color on the production crew, one person of color, and she's a woman. And she, um, I guess she knew Spike from NYU and like she had produced a movie a short film called pariah with spike lee Mm -hmm. and it ended up being produced into a feature film by the same name pariah with spike but that's how they knew each other and that's how she called him in order to do this master class but when he was talking i I saw him doing it more as the days go on is that he would drop the n-word more often and Mm -hmm. like seeing all these people that are white behind the camera like all of a sudden they're like looking at their phone and they're like looking around I'm like, oh, is that word making you uncomfortable? Like, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I thought it was so, and the thing, that, like, during that section was the voice, how to find your voice as a filmmaker. And Spike kept trying to get to it, but, like, the questions were never getting there. Yeah. And, like, where Spike's voice came from was his own experiences. Experience as an African-American male. He spoke directly male. about being an African-American man in New York in the 70s. That's where his voice came from, was those formative experiences for him. So by the time that he made She's Gotta Have It, and he had the money to make that movie, that that was what he spoke about, was about being African-American in New York. And mm-hmm. then it was even more obvious when he made Do the Right Thing, because that was the first movie that it was like, really, this is me planting yeah. my flag as a filmmaker. This is who I am as a person, and this is what I can do. And that really got everybody's attention. What's really interesting about the film industry in New York is that there's only one African-American key grip, and his name is uh, Lamont Crawford. Mm-hmm. And Lamont, the reason that he's a key grip is because he was Spike's key grip. Oh, wow. And he did every movie that Spike ever did. And because of that, he's a big deal. And, like, he has his 52 card, obviously. He's a 52 member. And, like, he hires people of color on his crew. Like, and the people that he keeps around are people of color. Like, when a permit worker comes on mm-hmm. and they're white, like, he'll keep them as, as long as he needs to, but inevitably he ends up cutting them for a person of color. Yeah. And some people say that that's reverse racism or whatever, but I'm like, no, this is Lamont doing the best he can out of a bad situation, is that he knows that Local 52 is 97% white. 
He wow. knows that. And he knows that he's the only black key grip. So when he sees someone who's interested in the same industry as he, he is in the craft that he's in, he's going to keep them around yeah. because it's important to represent your community. And that's something that needs to change. Is 97% white is yeah. unacceptable. There's what, 28% of New York is black. Like, you can't tell me How that you're being representative of Not the at community all. if 28% of the city is black, but you only have 3% as black yeah. in, the, in the film community. Like, that's ridiculous. So, but he's, he's, a, he's a really nice guy. I love Lamont. He's one of my favorite people to work for. Yeah. But, like, listening to his stories about Spike Lee, having worked with him before I met Spike, you know, like, when I met Spike, I talked to him, and I'm like, you know... I know Lamont, you know, I'm a friend of Lamont's, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, yeah, Lamont's a great dude, blah, blah, blah. And he introduced me to his A camera operator that he mm-hmm. always uses. His name is um, Kerwick, and, or Kerwin. And Kerwin was talking to me about the new movie that is coming out this next month called Black Klansman. Yeah. And he was saying, oh, we just wrapped on Black Klansman, blah, 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 blah. And he starts talking to me about it. And I was just like, dude, that's a story that I always wondered how that happened. Like, how did, how did this guy who's black infiltrate the KKK, KKK in Oregon. Like I'm so confused on how yeah. something like that happened. I know about him using a surrogate and that he was a Jewish man, but, but he was white and blah, 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 blah. But like, I always wanted to know that story. So I'm super excited about that movie. And Kerwin's like, dude, this movie's going to like light some people on fire. It's going to get some people really like freaked out mm-hmm. like, because it's very timely. And that was before he told me that, I guess that was last year. So he told me that before all this shit about David, um, what's his name? Uh, David Duke or David Durbin? What's his name? The the, I can't lead, the Grand Duke of yeah. the KKK. Before that came out, the, oh, really? the Donald Trump yeah. was refusing to you know deny him and denounce him yeah. because he didn't know him. And I'm like, it was before Ridiculous. that happened. And he's just like, yo, dude, with this guy in the White House, this movie's gonna piss off a lot of people. And I'm like, good. Like it should do. It should do. I mean, do I, that. I wore this Malcolm X shirt yeah. last time I was in Buffalo. We wrapped, and I wanted to go get Chris something nice, so I went to Cabela's because Chris likes going to Cabela's for mm-hmm. all of his jackets and whatever. And I got him a two hundred dollar gift certificate. But when I walked in, I was wearing this shirt, and there was this white guy standing there, an older white guy in his seventies who was like working as the greeter. And when I walked in the door, he locked eyes with me, and he watched me walk all the way to him with this like look of suspicion. And when I walked right up to him, I said, "Hello, sir. How's your day?" He didn't say anything to me. And I was like, uh, where are the gift cards? And all he did was point. He kept looking wow. at me and all he did was point. point. He didn't even talk to Igno- me. And I walked over there, he didn't acknowledge me. But I was just like, the man's been dead for 50 years. Like, wow. Malcolm X has been dead for 50 years. Like, is he really still, he still that much of a threat, threat to white culture, yeah. like white identity? Like. Just because I'm wearing the shirt, yeah, it means I'm a like, fan. Like, what do you but... think I'm going to, like, come in here and do, you know? <laughs> yeah, what do you think I'm going to do? You think I'm going to come in here and light the store on fire? Yeah. Like, you know, if anything, Malcolm X was, like, super peaceful yeah. about the way he went about it. You know, he always said, if somebody raises their hand against you, like, you can't stand idly by as they do that. But it doesn't mean that you rise up in anger and violence. Yeah. And that was something that, like, I, I was really shocked by. Like, I knew that there was a lot of Trump supporters in northern New York. Yeah. But <laughs> when I w- came up here, I was just like, what the fuck? What's, what's happening? What's yeah. happening? Like, I, I've had a lot of racist stuff happen to me in my life. But, like, that, I was just like, this is really bizarre. Like, yeah. this is a fucking movie, man. Like, if anything sh- else, it's, a, it's the movie. Like, yeah. Maybe it's not even the man, you know. Maybe it's the movie I'm a fan of. And you're even still... Even though it's impossible to be just a fan of the movie. Movie and not, and not be, a be a fan of him, but... 
but I was just like, dude, this is like. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I there was some, the news had published some story, and I think it was just talking about how some of the white people in a specific area were saying how they didn't want these blacks coming into this area because they were gonna like make it dirty. And they were like, and he was honest. He was like, I'm gonna say it. Nobody else wants to say, it, but we don't want them coming here. And people were like, shocked, like, oh Buffalo, like people are really like that in Buffalo. I'm like, yes. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah. I, I had an experience with racism on uh, the TV show The Get Down. Mm-hmm. And The Get Down was keyed by Lamont Crawford and his black crew. And I remember that we were standing on the gate and I was loading something. And this white teamster out of one of the other uh, vehicles got out. And we were shooting two blocks from my mm-hmm. neighborhood. I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. But I live, like, right on the edge of Brownsville. Like, now Crown Heights is, like, in everything mm-hmm. from Nostrand Avenue. And I'm like, that's, that's, that's Park Slope, man. Like, that's not... I'm like, Brown I don't know that much about like, the city. Uh, the Brownsville is, like, the most dangerous neighborhood in Brooklyn, okay. Or in New York City. And it's very much the inner city New York that's mm-hmm. been popularized in media for forever. But, like, uh, we were shooting in Brownsville, two blocks from my house. And so I'm talking to this guy... He gets out of the car and he's like, man, I hate when we come to these ghetto neighborhoods. And I was like, I was like, what do you mean by ghetto neighborhoods? And he's like, oh, you know, just like run down. And I was like, no, what do you, what do you really mm-hmm. mean by ghetto neighborhoods? Because I'm like, there's plenty of rundown neighborhoods all over, over the city. Like, you just mean where there's a bunch of... What do you mean of- exactly? And he's like, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. And I'm like... Yes, you did. Yeah, you did. I know exactly <laughs> what you meant. Like, you just thought that I might reciprocate and like, you oh, read yeah, me, me wrong... And now you're trying to backpedal because you read me wrong. Like, I don't, I don't appreciate mm-hmm. this. And this guy's, like, getting really uncomfortable when he goes and he sits in his truck. And I'm just like, dude, <laughs> come on, man. Like, yeah. It's 2018, number one. And number two, like, you're shooting in a predominantly black neighborhood. Like, you can't say shit like that. Yeah. And that was, that was kind of shocking to me that he was, like, so blatant about it to me. I was like, did you expect me to have... Like, to agree with you? opinion and agree with you? Because, like, I came from a poor yeah. neighborhood. Like, I grew up in a town that was really racist. And, like, you're not going to get this sort of, like, positive reinforcement. Not from me. So, <laughs> I don't know what you thought. But... I don't exactly know what he was going for. But I was just so shocked by his, like, uh, audacity to say something like that to mm-hmm. me. I was just like, okay, whatever. Not at all. Ghetto neighborhood. <laughs> Come on. They say that all the time. And I'm like, what do you... What are you trying to say? Yeah, what are you really... You know, like, underlying that, what are you really trying to say? Yeah. I mean, my my landlord is a Hasidic Jew. Mm -hmm. And there was this woman that lived in the apartment across from me for over 10 years. And she had a kid. And, like, one day... You know, I had only been living there for, like, three years, two, three years at that point. And I I see her moving out one day. And I'm like, oh, Rachel, like, what's going on? Like, where are you going? You're packing Mm -hmm. up your stuff? And she's like, yeah, we found a better place, blah, 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 blah. And, like, Jacob's standing there, like... Super, the landlord Jacob he's standing there and he's supervising her moving out and uh, he's filling out some paperwork so like she goes downstairs with some boxes and I asked Jacob I was like yo like what's going on why is she moving out and he's like oh you know she found a better place to live and you know like uh, he's, he started telling me about like uh, you know we hope that we rent this place you know really soon and I was like yeah I'm sure you will you know like it's, it's a nice place and he's like yeah I hope that we can rent it to the right people this time I was like what do you mean the right people and he's like, he's like, oh, you know, people to pay their rent on time. And I'm like, Rachel has a three-year-old kid. I doubt that Rachel ever paid her her rent late. Like, Rachel's going to make sure that that kid has a house over her. What was she, Hispanic her. or? She's black. 
And I was just like, I, I was like, what do you mean the right people? And he's like, oh, you know, I, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm like, if you're going to say it, say what you mean. Me. I said, you meant you wanted to rent this to someone that's white. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. You're misunderstanding. And I was like, whatever, Jacob. Like, yeah. Whatever you want to say. I was like, I don't even how want do you to know how you look at me. me. Like, I was say, like, how do you think he feels about you? <laughs> I mean, he he really likes me. And mm-hmm. the reason he likes me is that I've always paid my rent on time. Like, I've But he might not really like who He may not really like, like me. But I'm a model tenant. I've yeah. never been called on for any sort of complaint or anything like that. I don't make He likes noise. that you give him his money on time. He might yeah. not like who, who I gave am this. Or who gave it, yeah. But I was just like, when he said that, I was like, what do you mean the right people? Like, this is a single mother. Mm-hmm. I doubt that she's paying her, land, her, her rent late because yeah. she knows she can get kicked out and that her and her three-year-old kid are going to have a problem with that. And she's been here for 10 years, you know? Like, oh, wow. This isn't, this isn't just like a new Luke. tenant, you know? Wow. Like, she's been here for a while. She wouldn't be there that long if she'd been paying her I was about to say, she would have been kicked out. Yeah. But I was just like, but then come to find out after he left, I asked, uh, I asked Rachel directly. I'm like, what's going on? Why'd you move out? And he's like, or she says, uh, Jacob gave her $50,000 to move out of her apartment. And she's like, you know, I, I wanted to move into a better neighborhood for my daughter. That way she can go to a better school, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, that's why I took the money. And I'm like, well, he's, ta- he's paying you off. That way he can make more money from raising the rent. I was like, you've been here for 10 years. You, you're probably rent-controlled. And she's like, yeah, I'm rent-controlled. You know, I've been rent-controlled for the last 10 years. I'm like, that's why he's doing it. Wow. And when I moved into my new apartment, which was literally right down the hall from my old apartment, year before last, it was a two-bedroom instead of a one-bedroom. So I moved into this two-bedroom, and the person that lived in there before had lived there for 25 years they had lived there. Wow. And so when I looked at the, the rental contract, because by law they have to tell you what the previous rent was mm-hmm. in the apartment and how long that well, person had been there, it was $730 a month that they had been paying. And I was like, and the new rent that's like listed later on was 1700 a month. And I was like, this is why you're kicking them out? Like $8,400 a year versus what? Yeah. Uh, $20,400 a year. Like there's... It makes sense why you're kicking them out because you want to make more money. But, like, these people have lived here for 25 years. In all honesty, that's their home. That's what they've known yeah. is that place, this building, these hallways. That's their home. But, like, through a process of gentrification, you're going to you kick, kick these people up. out. Luckily, it was me that was moving in and not, like, some, you know, white yeah. hipster or whatever. But then I was having a larger conversation about that, that, like... The the problem is not white people moving to these neighborhoods. The problem is, is that when white people move in the neighborhood, they don't they don't go to the businesses that are in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They have a habit of going to the Whole Foods that's over there, yeah. or they have a habit of going to the coffee shop that's over there. They don't go to the places that, that are, are in that neighborhood. So the Caribbean joint that's right next to my house that has been open for so many years. years like if there's more and more white people moving in the neighborhood and they're not, not going, going there, there it's gonna close that place down. closes down and then they put a coffee shop there a mm. coffee shop that appeals to so, people that are in the yeah. neighborhood so then the rent goes up in the entire neighborhood because now there's a nice coffee shop the park is being improved mm. a new restaurant a wine bar opened where there used to be some shitty dive bar yeah like this is what the process of gentrification is it's not simply white people moving into the neighborhood it's white people coming in and making people that have lived there their entire lives feel like they're not home anymore home anymore because they're pushing out the business businesses you know, they aren't spending because they're used to oh you know you have a lot of people who are of different cultures who want their caribbean food at the corner you know and now that's not there they're like i look around it doesn't even feel like home anymore yeah 
Well, I mean, this shit happens all the time in New York. Yeah. And like, it, I moved into New York four years ago. And four years ago, I was the, or my wife was the only white person in that building. Mm-hmm. And like when, when we moved into that neighborhood, like I had a lot of people ask me like, oh, don't you, do you feel safe with your wife in the neighborhood? And I was like, look, let me put it this way. I would be comfortable with my wife running in a sports bra in the middle of the night around mm-hmm. the park. That's how safe I feel here. Yeah. And I feel safe because I make friends with my neighbors. Because mm. ultimately, they're people. Yeah. They want to be treated with respect. They're yeah. not criminals just because they happen to be black. Yeah. And this person I was talking to was like, well, that's not what I meant. And I'm like, you may have not have said that, but that's what you're thinking. Is yeah. It's a predominantly black neighborhood. There's a white woman moving in. Oh, That's I don't a problem. Feel... You know? and like like you feel safe with her around yeah, all these it's black like, people? Yeah, man. Like, but in the four years that I've been there, almost half my apartment complex is now white. And mm-hmm. like, it, it took a year and a half before the next white person moved in. But since that second white person moved in, now they're renting, like, a lot of white people are moving in. And I just keep thinking to myself, like, man, like, any day now, like, the the soul food place down the street is going to close down. And sure enough, you know, three months ago, the soul food place closed down. Wow. And I'm like, and now there's a sign out front just before I left that says it's going to be, like, some fucking juice bar. And I'm like... (laughs) I know people in this neighborhood aren't drinking the juice bar. Like, yeah. I know these people. Like, a lot of these people are my friends. And, like, I live across the street from Kingsborough 7th Walk. And Kingsborough 7th Walk is where, like, a lot of gang activity happens because mm-hmm. it's a blood stronghold. And right across Atlantic, just a couple blocks from me, is a crip stronghold on the other side of the projects. And so they I'm like, well, a lot of gang activity happens here. And I know that it's going to happen one day is that, that that's going to get emptied out and they're going to put like some, they're going to renovate those apartments and they're going to be some like trendy apartments in there. But like the Kingsborough houses every summer, there's three or four murders that happen right across the street from me in that housing complex. Wow. And I'm just like, this is the neighborhood that I chose to live in because I didn't want to live in a white neighborhood. I wanted cultural diversity. Yeah. And, but, you know, people asked me, another person asked me about that because they knew about Kingsborough 7th Walk. And they're like, you feel safe living there? And I'm like, dude, I know everybody in that complex and I don't even live there. Yeah. And you want to know why? Because when I walk home and I see them hanging out and they're, you know, in the summer and they're cooking out, I go out there and I talk to them. Yeah. I'm like, hey, man, what you got going on? I'm, I live right over here. You know, like, you know, like, can I bring you some chips or something like that? I got this case of beer. Yeah. You know, have How fun. How you doing? And just because I'm a personal person, they know who I am. And when something bad happens in the neighborhood, they watch out for me and my yeah. wife. You know, they They're like, they no, t- we got to watch out for it. They yeah. told me literally one day, one of the guys was like, you got to make yourself scarce on Thursday. Because like wow. some shit's going to go down. Like somebody is like owing somebody money and some shit might go down. And I was like, okay, I appreciate that. I was like, it's not going to keep me from hanging out on the street. But, but like, you thank know, you. I appreciate you the, the heads wow. up. But it's it's stuff like that that they're people, you know, like they mm-hmm. they want to be treated with respect, and when they get respect, they give respect. Yeah. Like there's no reason that they should respect me or my wife. They don't know me, you know. But like because I gave them respect, because. But they the other people beings, coming in aren't going to do that. I know, and that's what I'm afraid of is that people coming in. Like we we had a white hipster, a gay white hipster move in the other day, and I was like, that's it. There goes my rent. <laughs> my rent's going up because of this guy. Yeah. You know? Because like I know that this guy isn't going to frequent the neighborhood. I know he's not going to talk to people in the park. Not at all. And I had this really racist experience happen to me the other day that this guy that moved in on the lower floor, because I live on the third floor, he was walking into the building one day. And, like, I was coming home from work. It was late. It was, like, 1 o'clock in the morning. He was coming back from the bar. And, like, I see him walking in. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to catch him before he closes the door. That Mm -hmm. way I don't have to pull out my keys. And so I start running. 
and he sees me running towards him and all of a sudden he gets some quickness in his step and he goes up and he like quickly is like trying to unlock the doors I'm coming up on him and like I stop right behind him and he's like he's fumbling with his key and he finally opens the door and he turns around and he sees me just standing there and he's like oh hey what's up Mm-hmm. And, like, I walked in. I was like, oh, thanks, man. Thanks for holding the door. But I knew that he was fucking running for yeah. a reason because he was scared. scared. Of me. He thought. And I'm like, dude, what am I going to do? Yeah. Honestly, like, you don't know me. I mean, I'm just I, trying to get in, so I don't want to get my keys. I have a master's keys. degree. My wife has two master's degrees. Like, I, I'm an educated man. Like, yeah. I've, I've lived in communities like this my entire life. But just because of that, you believe that mm-hmm. because of my skin color and the way that I look, you I'm assume that I'm a threat. And that was like that was so angering toward me. I was just like Yeah, it's like you you like I've never had to deal with something like that, but I can only imagine like how much anger you feel because like somebody is literally thinking you're a threat just because of who you are. You know, like how are you supposed to kind of deal with that? Yeah, I mean that's like the whole thing with uh you know, Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. is that there was that whole counter movement about blue lives matter. I'm like what the- And I'm like, you know what the problem with this is? Is that blue lives aren't a thing. That's number one. Like, police, like but there's police, white people. Like, there's everybody. Police that's- are blue, yes. You know, like, I'm not going to deny that. But, like, you saying blue lives matter is completely against the point. Because black lives matter is about somebody being upset by the way that people are treated by the skin color that they're born into. Mm-hmm. Cops chose to be cops. cops. Black people and Hispanic people you didn't don't choose their be- skin color. Yeah. There's a big difference there. And, like, on top of that... Cops are respected, at least in some elements of society. Or the whole white lives matter. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> or, no, 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 all lives matter. All lives matter. matter. And, you know, you would see the memes, like, that's like going to, like, um, a cancer thing and saying, like, lupus matters or something. Like, what? Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> like, okay, what? One of my favorite analogies beyond that one is, like, you don't show up to a breast cancer walk and say, like, yeah, like, you know, stomach cancer matters. Or yeah. But one of my favorites is um, when you go to a doctor and you break your arm, they x-ray your arm mm-hmm. and they look at your arm and they pull your blood and they you know they they work on your arm because that's the area that's hurting they don't look at your knee that may have had a surgery last year and yeah the, 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 they're not you know, worried about that is wearing down they're not worried about that they're worried about the arm because the arm is suffering right now that's what black lives matter is they're mm-hmm. not saying nobody else matters. matters they're saying right now this community is hurting this is what we need to focus on need to focus on and that, like, I, I love bringing up that to people that are of the All Lives Matter movement. I just don't they're get like, it. They're like, oh, man, you know, I, I didn't think of it that way, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, it's because you're so upset that the spotlight is being taken off of white people for even for a, a second. second. Because that's the norm, is let's concentrate on white people only. All the time. And, you know, what is it? It's a, it's a similar statistic. It's like... 99% of speaking roles in every movie and television show is a white person. And, like, it's 1% that's everyone else. Yeah. I'm just like, and of that 99%, 87% of them are male. I'm like, this is a majority white, male. cis males, like, heterosexual males on top yeah. of that, like, representing the film industry. Like, it's, it, I'm not comfortable it's insane. with that. So, anyway... That was kind of off topic. No, but I, I loved it. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming here and sharing 
all those cool things that you shared with us about working with Spike and hearing your perspective was really amazing. So thank you so much. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to enjoy listening to this. And yeah, it was just awesome. So thank you so much, Gabe. And to everybody who listened to it, definitely let us know what you thought. I hope you guys enjoyed this special episode of the Currently Podcast. And also make sure you guys stay tuned for season two. We will be coming back with new episodes in the next coming weeks. So definitely stay tuned. If you haven't already, please go like, subscribe, give us a rating, write a review. Make sure you're sharing with your friends and your family. And yeah, just let us know what you thought about this episode. Thank you all so much. Thank <laughs> you.